And what really got me interested is it's not just a little bit of adjustments that most people need to make relative to what these ultra wealthy investors are doing. It's completely different. What I saw in the bank was kind of a microcosm of that subset of borrowers. And what we've seen you know, on a bigger scale with a lot of research that we can back it up with is generally these ultra wealthy investors, they're largely invested into private equity real estate, private equity businesses. Those three usually make up close to anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of their portfolios. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. What if you could hang out with experienced tech industry executives, ask them about career growth, equity compensation, investing, financial strategies, and more? Then take an insight or two to guide your own career and lifestyle. Each week on the show, Christopher Nelson shares an in-depth look at how to navigate tech careers and hyper-growth companies, select the right companies to work for, earn equity, and build a passive income portfolio. Christopher is an author, tech exec, and principal and co-founder of Wealthward Capital. His goal is to give you the information you need to grow your career, build wealth, and make an impact. Now, here's Christopher. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm your host, Christopher Nelson. I've been in the tech industry for 20 plus years, and after climbing my way to the C-suite, working for three companies that have been through IPO, and investing my way to financial independence, I'm here to share with you everything that I've learned, and to introduce you to others that can help you along the way. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to my friend, Ben Frazier. Ben Frazier is the Chief Investment Officer at Aspen Funds. Aspen Funds is a private equity company that runs a debt fund, and it also runs an energy fund or oil and gas fund. It's so important as we are getting ourselves educated to understand private equity. Private equity is really, if you listen to the previous episode on the breakdown of private equity, is how the ultra wealthy build, maintain a lot of wealth. Today, I want to introduce you to two separate asset classes, debt funds, as well as oil and gas funds, so that you can get a general understanding of what they are. And knowing Ben, we're going to go deep. So I'm excited to share this with you today. Let's go meet Ben. Welcome to this week's episode of Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm excited to be here with a friend, Ben Frazier. Ben Frazier, for all of you, is the Chief Investment Officer at Aspen Funds. Aspen Funds is an Inc. 5000 company and is responsible for sourcing, vetting, and capital formation of a lot of different alternative investments, private equity investments. Ben has prior experience as a commercial banker and underwriter, and he's also worked in boutique asset management, some of that in oil and gas that we'll get into some of those things today. He's also contributes to the Forbes Finance Council, and he's a co-host of a podcast I'd recommend to check it out, Invest Like a Billionaire, Welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks so much, Christopher. This is going to be awesome. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. And it's important to understand that I know Ben Frazier. I also know his dad, Bob Frazier. And I think, as you know, listening to this podcast, we always talk about origin story. We talk about career. And it's going to be no different. Even though Ben doesn't come from a tech background, I think it's fascinating that his father, Bob Frazier, did have a startup tech company, transitioned into asset management transitioned into real estate. And for the people who know Bob, he has a, a big focus on macroeconomics. He does a lot of speaking around it. I want to understand what it was like to grow up in a house like that, where your dad was involved in technology, transition careers. And I can imagine that he spoke around the table a lot around money and about finance. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, it's fun to bring that up and don't talk a lot about that on podcast. So it's, it's fun to do it, but yeah, I, I get to work with my, my dad now, which has been really cool, kind of a full circle thing. So he's one of the founders of Aspen and, you know, one of our four partners and yeah, it was really cool, you know, growing up with an entrepreneur dad and just, I thought he was so cool. He was my hero, you know, and he, you know, a little bit of story on him, you know, really fascinating timing because he started a dot-com and the dot-com boom. And so wow. kind of early nineties started a kind of back office e-commerce platform and, uh, you know, who knew e-commerce became a big thing and uh, he did very well, raised a lot of money, uh, venture capital it was one of the, in the Midwest here, we're in Kansas city. He was the, the largest venture capitalized firm in the Midwest. Wow. He won the Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year award. He was preparing to go IPO. And I'm sure as you, you know, tell all your listeners, you know, get that exit. Well, he just missed the exit and uh, it all ended up crashing and burning right when the dot-com bubble burst. So, and 2001 were pretty rough. So he went from, you know, nine figure net worth to pretty much nothing. And, you know, long story between then and Aspen, but the the long and short of it is he you know, had an amazing business and they had, I mean, I think 2000 paying customers, you know, even when they were, you know, th things went south and he had lost control of the board, but he gave up kind of the last or another spot of the board when he did his last round of capital raising and lost control and they voted mm -hmm. to liquidate the company. So he just, it was out of his hands at that point. And so it's really right. difficult, but really kind of transitioned into, you know, finance, investing, and ultimately how do I find something that I can have more control over and I can have more stability, you know, and build right. wealth through. And so led him, you know, into real estate, led him into a few other things, um, but ultimately kind of formed the basis of Aspen funds. And kind of to your question on the kind of familial side growing up, what was it like having a dad like that? I mean, it was interesting because I would say we didn't actually talk a lot about money. So, you know, our relationship now is actually a lot different than, than it was um, uh, then, right? And so mm. things have evolved over time. And I think there was always a sense, especially in those early years, the really good years, you know, we had a sense of, hey, we're getting a lot of Christmas presents, we're going to Disney World, things were right. nice and easy. And then we had a sense of, oh, wow, we're not getting that many Christmas presents and, um, you know, we're not doing all these big family trips. And so it kind of shifted. You know, there wasn't a lot of talk that was explicit about, you know, money management or investing, but it was um, kind of understood, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is, you know, kind of a roller coaster sometimes. Right. But to me, it did, um, I think, inform a lot of what I wanted to do in my career, which was ultimately have ownership you know, buy mm. assets and um, really invest for the, for the long term. You know, and aside from just money, you know, pure money investing, there a lot of things that right. I learned was just how to, how to build a good career, how to maximize value wherever you're at and overperform and get paid, you know, or do more than you're getting paid for. So you're always adding value and, you know, went to school, got an advanced degree. And so there was a, a lot of indirect things that really launched me to where I'm at now. And, um, you know, very, very grateful for that. And now it's really fun too, because on this side of it, you know, where I have now, you know, four kids and get to work with my dad, it's a pretty cool experience because we are talking every day about money now, right? And we're right. now talking about family legacy and trust planning and other things that are really cool that you know, we want to build generational wealth. And how do we mm. do that? What does that look like? And so there's a lot of cool co conversations happening now um, that have been pretty fun. That's great. And I think it's so important 
you know, when we, when we get to different levels in our careers, when we get to different levels in our life to reflect back in, on what we heard around the dinner table on some of the experiences that we saw, because the reality is those do impact us. Those do help, you know, drive some of our decisions. So for yourself, how did that being in that entrepreneurial family, seeing the ups and downs, what type of degree did you decide to get? And what was your first job move? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, early on, seeing an entrepreneurial dad and, and kind of the concept was you got to go earn your keep, right? You got to mm. go, if you're not going to work hard, you're not going to make anything. And so we had kind of the allowance like most people, but it was barely, barely minimum wage for a kid, right? You know, it, was, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't paying the bills. So if you want to go make more money, you got to go earn it. So I remember, you know, we would do all these different things. I'd like create these carnivals for the whole um, you know, neighborhood and we'd charge them money to come play these games I made up. We started doing lemonade stands, but we were on like a really slow street, so we didn't get that much traffic. So, right. you know, we started like going door to door sales and you know, early on. And uh, so a lot of the kind of entrepreneurial foundation was built there. But, um, you know, went to, went to school and, you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do. But at that point, my dad was, he was doing a hedge fund. He was doing trading, mm. you know, stock market. And had got kind of got somewhat interested in finance, and so took a finance kind of path, um, and got a degree in finance, got an MBA after that, um, and just fell in love with it. Um, to be honest, just always I've always loved money in the sense of it's fun to you know count count your your winnings and how do you maximize it? How do you grow it? How do you save more? How do you invest and get better returns? Like those are things I've always just been naturally wired for. Um, so it was it was kind of somewhat serendipitous. Obviously, I had a lot of uh, mentorship, you know, partly with my father too, and kind of deciding what was the right path. And uh, now I, I'm here as a, you know, running on the investment side with with the firm, so it's worked out well. And what were some of the what were some of the steps in between that got you to um, before you started Aspen Funds? What were some of the things you did earlier on in your career that helped prep you to actually be a partner in the firm? Yeah, so. I mean, I had a pretty winding road. I think for me, I was I was pretty uh, motivated. I wanted to grow very fast. I've always been very curious, and you know, some some aspects of the corporate world appealed to me. I'm a natural maximizer, so if I have here's all the constraints, mm -hmm. how do you you know work within a system and perform well? So I always did well in that, but I always the same time dislike the constraints. It's like I just want to move a lot faster than than right. you know, some of these companies want to move. Um, so I just tried lots of different things. I did actually ended up doing door to door sales during college, learning kind of some sales skills. That was you know, very, very important to kind of, for me, balance out some of the real technical training that I was having and, you know, all the kind of career focused books and things, you know, self-improvement stuff I was reading. It's like, Hey, you got to have sales, no matter what position you're in within a company, being able right. to sell is really, really important. So I wanted to, to grow that and put myself in positions I had to, so did several different like random sales and uh, roles and then kind of got into uh, the asset management side. So I was working for a large asset manager uh, that had several ETFs and mutual funds that were mm. traded in the oil and gas midstream space and got a really cool exposure to, excuse me, institutional uh, equity, institutional investing. These were big endowments, you know, pension funds, foundations that we were working with as well as kind of the retail side, but I was more on the institutional and kind of very eye-opening experience. And then from there, kind of shifted into commercial banking. And uh, that's where mm -hmm. I really learned a lot of underwriting, of really getting to see kind of underneath the hood of, of what makes these wealthy 
you know, borrowers of the bank so wealthy. One of my favorite things I got to do when I, you know, shifted to banking was look at the personal financial statements of all of these borrowers that we have. And it wow. was kind of a boutique bank. So we're focused on like uh, wealthy business owners was the kind of clientele. And so I got to see exactly how much they're making from the tax returns and where are they investing, how have they built their net worths. And um, I mean, talk about education, all the things that I got to see was so cool. And then just got the fire stoked to me like, hey, I want to do that. You know, I don't want to oh, yeah, I want to go build that. Yeah. I'm curious what, yeah. like, because that's, so one thing here for, for technology employees, we get overexposed in stocks, sometimes in a single stock for a company that we're working for, or we do venture funding. Give us a view into, when you look at that personal financial statement and you think about what's a pattern that you saw with the ultra wealthy that doesn't get fed to us. We get a lot of messages from these larger financial services companies, stuff everything in your you know, 401k, you know, uh, get everything into growth equities, 4% rule. What patterns did you see that, you know, you'd share with us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the two real simple ones this is probably partly a bias from the clientele, the bank, but I think it can be universally applied is, you know, the wealthy generally own businesses and mm. they generally own real estate, you know, whether the real estate is what caused them to build the wealth. You know, that's usually someone professional in the industry. But regardless, these people are investing in real estate. And a lot of times they own businesses, right? That's one of the biggest amplifiers of, of building wealth. And so it actually, I mean, it's a great thing you bring that up because part of our focus now on our podcast, Invest Like a Billionaire, is studying the ultra wealthy because it, it got me so interested in saying, what are the ultra wealthy doing? And what really got me interested is, what the ultra wealthy are doing from the research that I found is very different than the standard, you know, stuff in 401k and forget about it until you're 65. Right. And it's, it's not just like a little bit of, uh, you know, adjustments that, you know, most people need to make relative to what these ultra wealthy investors are doing. It's, it's completely different. And so, hmm. you know, what I saw in the bank was kind of a microcosm of that subset of, of borrowers. And what we've seen, you know, on a bigger scale with a lot of research that we can back it up with is, Generally, these ultra wealthy investors, you know, whether it's a family office, whether it's an endowment, you know, the Yale Endowment's a great example, um, foundation, pension, they're largely and heavily invested into private equity, private equity real estate, private equity uh, businesses, and mm -hmm. venture capital. And, you know, those three usually make up close to anywhere from 30 to 50% of their right. portfolios. Right. 30 to 50. And the average retail investor maybe has two to 3%. And if they own an Airbnb or if they, you know, own a rental or something, maybe that, uh, you know, boosts that percentage up a little bit. But by and large, there's a pretty big gap. And um, so that's really what we're passionate about is helping people understand, you know, these types, this whole world of alternative investing. Well, and I think that that's a good transition point. I want to uh, take, I'm going to put a pause right here. And when we come back, it's important that we learn from Ben, you know, about debt funds. We learn about some of these energy investments because this is the real opportunity for ourselves is to learn and understand so that we can start expanding and changing our portfolio. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to the second half of Tech Careers and Money Talk. We're here with Ben Frazier and I am 
pumped for this side of the episode because we're going to be talking about two asset classes that I'm heavily researching right now and looking for opportunities to get exposure to. Ben, with his experience of you know working on the banking side, now in Aspen funds, they created their own debt funds. They essentially became like the bank. And so break down for us, what are private equity debt funds? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, just to kind of create a little more context um, you know, for how we operate at Aspen is it's a little bit different than some other sponsors where we're in one asset class, we're a hammer and everything's a nail. Mm. And we explicitly decided to kind of go a different route and create more of an agile business model because to your comment earlier, you know, part of our focus with, with Bob and, uh, and our research team is focus on what are the macro trends? Where are the opportunities based on the big picture things that are moving along the economy? And we want to be positioned to benefit from those because, you know, going back to Bob's story with the timing, you know, timing is everything, right? It was a really good time to be a dot-com owner in the 90s, not a good time in the early 2000s, even though nothing changed fundamentally, right? And so understanding the timing of things is really, really important. And I say all that to say we we um, are very excited about these two asset classes we're going to talk about, but it really shifts over time based on where we think the best opportunities are. And so we've invested in tons of different assets, a lot of different asset classes and strategies. And uh, one of the foundational ones actually of Aspen that started us about 11 years ago was coming out of the great financial crisis, buying mm. distressed mortgages and buying distressed debt. And so we have a whole expertise um, in-house around debt, obviously with my banking background coming from that world. And so uh, a, a debt fund is, you know, not that dissimilar to an equity fund that's investing, mm -hmm. say, in multifamily, you know, for a lot of people are investing in multifamily. And, you know, when you are investing in anything, you are investing at some portion of the capital stack. And so right. that's something I always think is really important for people to understand. It might be a new term uh, that you're getting used to or never heard before, which is the capital stack. And it's understanding you, know, you have your asset right here. And the other side of that is what forms the capital stack of how you purchase that asset, how are you funding and financing that asset? And so it's usually some combination of senior debt and equity um, has to always be there. Then sometimes you have these other layers of mezzanine debt and or preferred equity. And when you go further down the capital stack, you know the, the senior debt is usually a bank or some kind of debt mm -hmm. fund, usually the lowest return. So they're gonna, their interest rate's gonna be so right now they're gonna be higher, eight percent, say, um, but the risk is lower because they get paid first, and so mm -hmm. to the extent that the value of an asset goes down, they're the least at risk. And so the further you are to the cap down the capital stack, the lower rate of return you can expect, um, but the lower the risk. And, and conversely, the higher up you are, um, and the highest is common equity, um, mm. the highest risk, but also the highest potential return. And so right now what's interesting is we're kind of in this shifting of the market. There's a lot of dislocations happening, especially in multifamily, especially, especially in office. And, um, you know, I think it's important. Most people, when they've kind of got excited about this private alternative world, most of, most people invested in multifamily and, you know, maybe you invest in a few different geographies, so you get some diversification there, but did you invest in different parts of the capital stack, right? It's another level mm -hmm. of diversification and, and allocation strategy to reduce risk. And most people did it. Most people invest in common equity. They see the big returns and that's what I'm going for. Well, I hate to break it to you, but a lot of those deals 
may not live up to the returns that they originally proposed for a a lot of reasons, which prompt to get into. But where I'm going with this is in markets like right now where we're seeing some dislocation in values, right? So the bid ask spread is really, really wide, meaning sellers don't want to sell for what buyers want to buy at. And they're pretty far off. And these interest rates are putting a lot of pressure on buyers to have to pay lower prices. So it's creating kind of this stall out in the market. There's not a lot of transactions going on. And a lot of deals are kind of headed for some major challenges with maturing debt. And so where we're kind of seeing an opportunity is is going lower in the capital stack. So kind of playing in that mes debt, preferred equity, you know, slivers of the capital stack. So Mm -hmm. you reduce your risk because you get preferential treatment before common equity. Um, You get paid usually after senior debt. But what we're seeing right now is because banks are really tightening their credit, meaning they're not lending a lot right now. They're not making new loans. They're kind of holding on to what they mm-hmm. have and just hunkering down, hoping things will be okay. There's a huge gap of funding for a lot of these deals that are kind of, they're good deals, good good properties, good locations, but they, they have some challenges they need to solve. They need some capital to do that. Well, you can come in, provide that kind of gap funding, and you can get about, you can get roughly equity-like returns with debt-like risk, much lower risk, uh, Mm. because you're going to get paid before any of the common equity and you kind of come in and you save the day, so to speak, in that slice of it. So might be a little too technical, but trying to create the, paint the picture here of why there's an opportunity um, in this particular part of the market. Well, and and don't shy away from being technical. We're, We're technical people here. We love to geek out on all the things. So that that's all good. Getting back to the fundamentals, though, is I love the way you painted up the capital stack. You're getting lower, lower risk in returns. And generally speaking, the way that these types of investments work is you're going to put your own capital into this fund. The fund is then going to provide you some type of a regular payout, regular return. So this is a income investment. Because you're not on the equity side, you aren't going to get the distribution, the depreciation. You're going to be able to get distributions. You're going to get cash flow, but it's a nice, you know, uh, when you think about a portfolio and portfolios need income to be able to have liquidity, to have flexibility, a debt investment, I think has been stated. Number one, gives you diversity of the capital stack. If you're just doing equity investments, uh, this is another way to diversify. And then it also provides good, healthy income that I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's super important for us to have that conversation. I think towards the end of the last cycle, right, coming up into 2022, there were a lot of equity investments that did not have a lot of income. And for those of us, you know, myself included, that rely on my LP investments to, you know, replace my corporate check, income is critical. And this is where I think for people looking at alternative investments, thinking about a debt fund, it could definitely fill that gap. A hundred percent. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard from some of our investors that, hey, I'm in these deals and these are with well-known operators that are good operators, but they're positive distributions right now, right? Yep. A lot of operators are just, we're going to go on hold. We don't really know what to expect. We don't. We need to just you know build up reserves and make sure we can make it through. And then there's a lot of deals that are kind of halfway through the, the value add process um, and they're struggling and uh, they're trying, they never, never even got the distribution phase and now they're hoping they can actually preserve principal and capital. And so 
You're exactly right. I mean, equity investments are generally not designed to primarily be income focused. And even though a lot of times that will be a component of the overall return, if you're investing in a, a real equity play, the, the goal is future growth. And so right. you usually do that at the expense of current income. And so you need to have that balance and you need to have that balance, not just from your equity, but also in lowering the capital stack that are really designed to, to pay the current income. Uh, because the way a lot of these deals at work, when we're coming in as an investor, we have an element of current pay right out the gate. Um, right. And so it's different on different structures, but our borrowers uh, have to start making payments on our investment right away. And right. we're getting cash in the door. And so, you know, cash flow is a great way to reduce risk because you're getting, you know, profits back um, on your original investment right out the gate, lowering your principal at risk. So it's it's a it's a great way to lower your risk, great way to kind of bolster up that income side of the portfolio, especially if you're relying on that to, you know, for part of your living expenses. You know, thinking again generally, what what do we see out there in debt funds? What are some of the the general structures of debt funds? In in flavors of them, right? I know we talked a little bit before. There's residential, there's commercial, but you know, give us a little view of the landscape of debt funds. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a million ways to slice it. I think the real simple kind of categories would be, you know, residential versus commercial. And we have a residential uh, debt fund that's been going for 10 years and continues to be a great um, vehicle. Um, we have a commercial, you know, debt is another kind of category. And within that, there's kind of different types of debt, right? And and uh, preferred equity is not truly debt because it's not usually secured by a lien, uh, mm. but it acts similarly in that it has some form of a current pay uh, component to it with some upside. A lot of times these kind of mezzanine debt structures also not only get the interest rate of the current pay, but they also get some of the back end profits. And so that, that's very common in these types of structures. Um, the 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 use and the need for these types of um, funding is is you know it's pretty similar across the board. You know it's usually some type of say it's some type of development project, which is more like bridge financing. So mm. it's not really bankable yet um, because you know this is a, a redevelopment project, and so you need to kind of increase your your leverage ratio a little bit because banks aren't aren't lending on it or not lending very high. Um, another one is kind of gap funding. So I kind of referenced that a lot of deals that we're seeing right now in the commercial space mm. uh, were purchased on uh, bridge debt terms. And bridge debt was great a couple of years ago because you could get super high leverage mm. and uh, usually pretty low interest rates at that point in time. Yes. The, the caveat was these are floating rate, you know, facilities or, or, or debt facilities. So interest rates went up all of a sudden interest costs have tripled on some of these these uh, loans and mm. they can't service the debt and a lot of times you can buy what's called an interest rate cap so you can kind of limit the ceiling to where your interest rate is well those only last usually three years and you have to buy another cap um, to kind of continue on with that with that interest rate so a lot of these deals are needing to purchase interest rate caps they don't have the capital or hey they're 80 percent through the renovation plan and I've heard this, like banks are actually stopping new um, draws on construction right. loans that were already approved. And this is funds that they already said that we're going to give you. Now they're pulling back, saying, no, we're not going to give you any more funds. So they are stuck. 
you know, how do I yes. keep finishing this renovation plan? And then there are deals which are you know, usually a bit higher risk, but you're usually getting compensated for it. If you can find the right deals, they're more distressed, right? These are deals that are not trending in good directions. They, you know, have some, some bigger issues that need to be solved and kind of, you know, refinance the whole the whole debt stack, um, or you know, provide additional liquidity. So there's other you know special situations. This can be called distressed uh, opportunities. So those are other areas um, that you can kind of play in this in this uh, pond here. And so what, what, when you think about an investor, an LP coming in and evaluating a debt fund, what are what are some of the fundamental things that they want to look at? Yeah, well, I think just like anything, you got to look at track record of of the operator and. How much have they done this before? What's the expertise? And you know, debt is a little more technical than equity, right? There's you know, filing liens, understanding how to structure certain things, understand how mm. you're collateralized, and you know where the kind of gotchas are uh, are very very important. And bankers think differently than you know most people. And part of the reason why I wanted to leave because I was like, I I can't do this for my whole career. It's <laughs> it's it's too, too depressing, right? You only have you only have a fixed interest rate and you then you look at all the downsides of how that could not be earned right, right. you don't have any of the the benefit of the upside so um yeah i mean you're looking at the downside risks you know at a simple high level you want to look at um what's the overall leverage what are you secured by right because you can be secured by what's called all business assets if, if it's like a business loan or something mm-hmm. but it could be nothing it could be you know 50 year old equipment and what's the actual mm-hmm. resale value of that you know, very unlikely. You want to look at, you know, credit score of the principles. You want to have guarantees of the mm-hmm. principles so that if the collateral, you know, sells at a discount, doesn't cover the whole loan, you actually have recourse back to the the, the owners and the individuals behind yes. the deals. Um, you want to look, I mean, getting reference checks, right? Are these mm-hmm. actually good quality borrowers and people you want to, you know, be doing business with? Um, and then the, the 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 big thing from the kind of how do you get paid back is is the first question you're always going to ask, yeah. right? And so you want to see something that is has a clear path to an exit, whether that's through refinance or through a sale of the property. And the great thing, when I mean, you're coming in at a lower part of the capital stack, is your minimum hurdle to get paid out is a lot lower than the equity investors, right? Because right. usually, if someone brought say twenty to thirty percent equity all of those investors get paid after you get fully paid all your fees all your interest all your mm-hmm. principal and so usually it's a lower hurdle um, which makes it a lot more feasible a lot of times and unfortunately sometimes some of these deals may not pay back all the equity and right um, you know that's unfortunate but that's also the the nature of of how these cycles work and why there's an opportunity i think um, to come in at that level I had Jeremy roll on the podcast and uh, I don't know if we were talking about this in the green room or whether it was on the podcast, but I was asking him about debt funds. And one of the things that he mentioned is, especially now there could be risk to your point. If, if you have large leverage, you know, 70, 80% loan to value and you're going in and then you have prices coming down, walk us through, you know, how, what kind of questions do you ask about the risk and the type of loans to make sure that, you know, you're not getting in with an outfit that's too risky? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, overall leverage, you don't really want to, you want to kind of cap out at 70% usually. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we don't really get 
beyond that. So if they're already leveraged 80%, it's, it's probably a no-go. Um, usually like we like to be closer to the 50%. I mean, that's mm. a lot of our, our loans are below 60, I would say. Um, and that just gives you a lot more margin to work with, right? Um, so some of these deals, they're, they're not going to work. They're just not, they got to raise more equity um, to get, you know, to, to fill the gaps. But you're exactly right. I mean, theoretically, a deal that has come in at say 75 or 80% leverage two years ago, and they've renovated 80 or 90% of the units is on a multifamily deal, for example. Right. Theoretically, they have increased the value of that property a decent amount because if you increase your net operating income, you know, you've increased the value because your value is net, net operating income divided by cap rate. So the big sure. question is then, well, we're, we're at cap rates right now. And I think that is, you know, mm. the big question. Um, so we, you have to be conservative when you're kind of calculating a new value, but it is very, very possible that someone purchased at higher leverage where they've, they've increased NOI enough to, they've increased the value, but they can't make any, there's still negative cash flow because interest costs you know, are, are what they are. They, they have tripled for a lot of these deals. And so that's, that's pretty um, challenging, even though operationally and fundamentally at the asset level, they're doing, they're doing very well. So the, that's, you got to get a little more nuanced. Um, right. But again, if you're going to a higher leverage, you're going to be charging a lot, lot higher rate for that. And you want to, you know, sometimes we'll do deals where we'll actually be cross collateralized. So, hmm. you know, the principals have a big balance sheet and, you know, maybe there's not enough leverage in this one particular deal, but we'll go get cross collateralized with some other assets that we mm. feel good about. And ultimately, we generally will get uh, some type of either broker opinion of value or appraisal or something to kind of substantiate current value when you're going in. But right, right, and that's that's current value. That's not, you know, that I mean, again, that's that's looking at current cap rates, current NOI, and where are we in the current market? Because obviously, that's changed over the last. 12 to 18. 100%. You got to re-underwrite these things with a blank slate. I mean, things have completely fundamentally changed to, to a large degree. Now, even like coming from the banking side again, like I've reviewed 100 appraisals and even the appraisers, especially on a refinance or without a sale, you know, it's, it's always, always surprising to me. It's especially happens in the residential, but even commercial, it's like magically they they come up with a value that 95% of the times is the exact value that the purchase price is, right? On a purchase uh, <laughs> appraisal, right? It's like, wow, that's just so, so magical that that happens. And the reality is they're assuming that in a, you know, arm's length transaction that what you're paying is the market at that current time. So then they're just mm. using a hundred pages of math to try to support that number. That That's usually mm. what it's doing. And so all that to say an appraisal, it's valuable. It's very valuable, but it's it's very limited, especially in a refinance scenario, or especially in a purchase scenario. But even in a refinance scenario where they don't have a lot of, they're just making assumptions, and so you got to challenge those. But ultimately, when you're kind of capping out at seventy percent all in, what what you, what that means is the value of the property could drop thirty percent from where it's at right now, and you would not lose a dime. Right? right. That that's what it means. So that's that's historically a pretty big margin you know this yeah. it's very rare that the market crashes 30 percent in commercial real estate and even if it does you know usually recovers in a pretty short period of time so you know that's leverage really matters obviously all these other things matter and you know how you kind of get to an exit but absolutely le le leverage is very very important 
So let's transition. I want to spend some time talking about some of these energy investments. One of the things that I've learned as I've been doing due diligence on energy investments is that some of them actually have depreciation that you can take against active income, which you know, to all of us technology employees where we're getting RSUs and we're getting a lot, huge amounts of income every year, this can be very powerful because there's an opportunity to make an investment and then lower your overall in-year tax burden directly. So walk us through a little bit, like give us again the, you know, 50,000 foot level, what, what are general oil and gas investments? What sort of qualify as that? And then what are, what are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're right that those exist out there where you can actually uh, take tax losses against active income. Um, that's something you can't do in real estate, which is, which is pretty crazy. Um, if you really think about it, but you know, going straight straight to the to the tax question i always have to give the caveat because everyone gets excited about it but i always say you know don't let the tax tail wag right. the dog because it's it's a benefit it should it should yes. be something you evaluate in the whole you know evaluation but it should never be the primary driver uh, for mm. an investment and, that's right and, and case in point is a lot of people that are selling oil and gas interests are selling um drilling programs Nothing inherently wrong with drilling programs, meaning, you know, we are raising capital to go drill some new wells, and then you will share in the profit on the success or lack thereof of these wells. And the the challenge is the lack thereof part of this, right? Is right. If you're investing in drilling, you are taking additional risk. Um, now, you're, now, what they can do a lot of times, they can front load a lot of these expenses in the calendar year, so you can get a pretty nice tax write off. So it, mm. it is meaningful and it does reduce your risk because of that. But if you're reducing your tax basis, but then you have a big fat zero as your, you know, return on investment, it's that doesn't put you ahead, is, right. is kind of where I'm getting at. Yeah. So our our focus has always been, you know, let's go find where are the best opportunities to maximize shareholder return and and, and find value. Where it's what's our thesis, which we can get into. Um, and then try to structure something that is going to be as tax advantageous as possible. Mm. And so that that's kind of been our approach to it. And, and again, the reason I, I emphasize this is for some reason, I don't know why, I've been investing in oil and gas for, for a few years now. Oil and gas attracts uh, some unique people, <laughs> from an operator standpoint. And I don't necessarily think there's, there's more bad actors in oil and gas than there are in real estate. But it does seem to attract people that are a little more just, hey, we're going to exaggerate the truth a little bit. And mm. um, because of its ups and downs, when it's good, like right now, it's it's, an, it's amazing. I mean, we're buying we're buying existing cash flowing wells at 25% cap rates. So 25% wow. unlevered cash on cash. It's insane. So don't tell too many people about that because we're trying to buy as much as we can right now. Right. But, um, but then it's like, you know. Commodities have down markets too. So you have to be sophisticated mm. in how you're investing in these types of things. And so I say all that to say, um, just just be cautious in this in this industry because, um, for example, we were at a conference a few months ago, a lot of oil and gas sponsors there, and they're drilling vertical wells. Vertical wells are fine. There's nothing wrong with vertical versus horizontal. They're, they're different. Um, but they're charging basically, I think it was a three million dollars for one vertical well well i've drilled vertical wells i happen to know how much it costs and it's about a fourth to a fifth of that mm. and so they're front loading the the fees of this by about 4x and so um 
you, you know, even if the well is goes gangbusters, you're, mm. you're, you're so diluted that um, it's, it's not going to be a great, a great deal. So those are the kind of things where you just want to watch out for some of this kind of unique structures. But um, at a high level, I mean, oil and gas is, we believe a, a generational buying opportunity right now. And, mm. you know, we actually just did a presentation yesterday on this or on this layer, but uh, people can watch it just on one of the mega trends of oil and gas. We, we think we're in a secular, I mean, long-term and structural supply constrained environment for the next 10 years. Um, mm. There's been so little drilling that's happened over the past few years and so much um, emphasis from ESG and a lot of your listeners are tech listeners. I'm 100% behind alternative energy. I think we need to do a lot more of it, especially nuclear. And it's important to invest in these technologies. But where the challenge is, the the, the transition plan is so short-sighted. Hmm. There's so many challenges to make this transition in this short period of time. We've been investing in alternative energies and trying to, you know, build out new sources for the past 50 years, really the 70s started this right. kind of revolution towards, towards green. Right now, as we sit, only 17% of the global energy usage comes from non-carbon sources, 17%. So in 50 years, we've, we've made a, an okay dent, I mean, a decent dent, but it's so far from replacing fossil fuels. And um, that's where I think a lot of people get it wrong is mm. Not to get all political on it, but you know there, there's a lot of um, reasons why politicians want high oil prices. To be honest, right? Because right. if you have high oil prices, it actually potentially forces the transition faster mm -hmm. and uh, creates some demand destruction. But demand destruction is a very, very negative thing as a whole uh, population and country because fossil fuels and cheap energy are a primary overall wealth builder because it's mm -hmm. or just building prosperity across every facet of humanity because access to cheap energy fundamentally changes uh, civilizations and improves mm. overall prosperity, whatever source that energy is, but it's gotta be ubiquitous and it's gotta be inexpensive. So all that to say, I think there's um, a very unique time right now where one, prices are already pretty high and, and returns look really good right now. Right. But over the next 10 years, um, if you're going to be selling oil, you're, you're making oil, you're producing it and you're selling it, I think you're going to be have a lot of upside exposure to to price um, that you don't have to pay for right now. I mean, like I said, we're buying uh, these these wells at 25 percent cash on cash um, right mm. now at, at today's prices. And so when when I think, though, when I think about oil and gas investments, am I really seeing the same spectrum that you see in traditional real estate where you have opportunistic I have a piece of dirt. I'm going to go, we're going to go drill brand new wells, opportunistic all the way to sounds like what you're doing, which may be, I don't know if it's a value add or it's maybe a core core plus where we have existing wells. We're going in, maybe adding some new equipment, adding some new things. And then we're just going to continue to cash flow off of this existing infrastructure. We have knowledge of what that asset is. And then, cause I also know there's a few different flavors around that, but is that sort of like the meat and potatoes of it. Yeah, you're exactly right. There are kind of nuances to what you're investing in. So understand the strategy is very important. Um, you know, going and doing new drilling, to me that that's that's the highest risk uh, because you have no cash flow. If if one or a couple of these wells don't hit oil or hit oil economically, 
um, where they can take it out of the ground at a profit, then, you know, your return is going to be severely impacted. So to me, it's potential for big upside, but it's the highest variance of return, which is one of the definitions of risk, right? Is what's the range of return this could be. And, you know, maybe all your wells hit, you're making hundred percent returns, but if a couple don't or all of them don't, you're making Mm. 0% and anywhere somewhere in between. So I've known a lot of people, so why some people I've been talking with have invested in oil and gas and like, oh, it's amazing. I got so much cash flow. And some people are like, it sucks. I'm never doing it again. I got like, I got 0% returns, right? And that's that's why, because they're investing predominantly in in drilling programs. Right. Um, the other side of it is you can go buy existing producing wells. So you have a few different terminologies. The simple ones are PDP and PUD. So you have proven developed producing and proven mm-hmm. undeveloped. And so these are SEC terms. You have to prove reserves, very difficult to do. Um, and it's a very meaningful designation. And PDP, which are your producing wells, you can buy these at really, really good uh, values. And that's kind of what I'm talking about right now. And mm. so what we're, our strategy is, let's go buy existing producing wells because we have cash flow, like we're talking right. about earlier, that reduces risk, reduces a whole mm. lot of risk. I and mean, you can pr- purchase cash flow at a really good basis, like a 20 to 25% cash on cash. That reduces it even further. And then we what we do that as we get the rights to be able to participate in new drilling activities on the acreage that we have the rights to. And so right. like we just for for example, just purchased a package of 143 horizontal wells um, in a really, really good basin in the scoop stack um, in Oklahoma. And this is producing amazing cash flow. Um, and then we can leverage that cash flow to uh, participate in new drilling. There's about 68, I believe, uh, planned developmental drills in this basin. And this is why we get sort of infill drilling, right? So there's exploratory, wildcatting you may have heard of. Mm. These are going exploring in new areas of different basins. Infill is, you know, we've already drilled a thousand wells in this in this you know area. We're about to drill the thousandth and first well, right? And that's right. that's the difference. So it's lower risk. But in this particular basin, it's it's still a really compelling return. So they had about they have a ninety percent success rate and gross IRRs on average are fifty percent. So and that that's including the wells that don't work. So that's that's a pretty that's a pretty good rate of return uh, to take that yeah. risk. And so what we're doing is layering the cash flow, reinvesting that back into these uh, new new uh, drilling programs to kind of get this snowball effect um, where you can kind of you know build even more more cash flow because. One of the one of the things you got to think about oil and gas is very different than real estate, and this took me a while to kind of shift the brain space here. Real estate generally appreciates over time, right? And that's why right. we all love real estate. Oil and gas depletes over time, right? Because yeah, there's right. a fixed amount that you can pull out from each well, and so to continue to produce the same levels of cash flow over time, you know, one you need higher prices, or you need to produce more, and mm. uh, you don't want to bank on higher prices. So you got to be producing more. So drilling is kind of a key component of this. Um, but I think the best way to do it is to layer it in with existing cash flow. What are your, I mean, I'm just curious. So, so you said, I mean, we've, we've talked about a lot, especially on the energy side, especially with, you know, the fact that we haven't been drilling enough and, and I remember your father speaking earlier this year, you know, just sort of on the, the supply demand around that, what do you think is the is the future of private equity investments in in energy like this? Yeah, well, I think over the next couple of years, um, you know, it's, it's a good buying time right now. 
Uh, we'll mm-hmm. see what happens. I mean, oil is, you know, as we speak right now, $90 a barrel, um, which is definitely higher than a long-term average. And some, you know, economists and investment bankers are predicting potentially uh, oil prices that we've never seen before because mm. we're, we're headed over the next five to seven years to a place that if we don't reverse course and start to drill more, we're, we're not going to be able to catch up. Um, JP Morgan actually just released a report where they said by 2030, they're expecting a 7.1 million barrel per day, 7.1 million barrels per day shortfall mm. based on, the, on where the demand is expected to be at that point. And that's including all sources, OPEC included. There's just fundamentally not enough supply. So what's that going to do? That's going to put a lot of upper pressure on price, but it's probably going to create demand destruction too. So it's, you know, it's always this demand destruction, meaning, well, someone was going to go on a trip, but now all of a sudden uh, plane tickets have tripled because jet fuel is so expensive. Or maybe we're not going to go drive to the coast because gas prices have tripled. So mm. there's people start making different decisions if, if prices get that high. Right. But to a certain degree, you know, there, there's going to be a floor uh, because of that supply uh, factor. So, you know, unfortunately, I think we're headed for for a crisis in energy. Mm. Um, but, you know, from an opportunistic side of me, let's position to be taking advantage of that. Let's be selling oil when it's a really good time to be selling. Well, Ben, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. We we do transition. We do ask everybody a series of five questions, a little fire round here at the end. So I have a couple of questions for you. So right. uh, what's some advice that you would give your younger self, you know, getting started in your career and in investing? Oh, that's a good one. You know, I think play the long game. I think for, for, for me, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners where, I just wanted to be a millionaire by like the time I was 25, right? And you see all, especially now it feels like, like all these TikTokers or whoever are like, you know, posing by the Lamborghinis. It's like, oh, I'm just so far behind. But, you know, wealth building is not linear. And what I've found, you know, just personally, the past five years, my net worth is 10 or 20 X. Um, but it because it's the accumulation and compounding of right. the skills that I've been building for a long time, I wasn't really getting paid for them for a long time. Mm-hmm. But now all of a sudden, there's a way for me to monetize those skills and to be able to leverage all that I know into building wealth, right? But it took a long time to get to that point where now it's becoming a hockey stick. If you understand the power of compounding, if that's an inherent truth just in the fundamental way things work is long, you play the long game, but it's not linear. It's exponential. And that's what's so cool about compounding is not just in money, but in skills. And the faster you can learn, the faster you can iterate, the faster you can get up that to the more fun part of the compound stick. <laughs> exactly. More zeros, baby. Love that. Uh, what soft skill do you believe has helped your career the most? Yeah, well, I think I alluded to it earlier. I think sales is is so fundamental and having a technical degree coupled with mm. kind of the soft skills, the people skills and the sales skills have been very, very invaluable um, in just being able to sell, right? Whatever your idea is, whether you're in, in a company and you know, you're trying to sell the next project or the next right. uh, whatever. That that's a very very important skill. What do you do to recharge? Oh man, try and get up earlier before all my kids get up. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I have a daily practice of of uh, reading the Bible and prayer. Um, I uh, do actually a lot of music. So I before I kind of went to school, 
was a musician, recorded a couple of CDs, sing a song, right? So my wife and I are both musicians. So we love wow. to do music together, um, any kind of physical activity and, um, just, yeah, being with the family, honestly, it's, I got four, four young girls, so it's, it's a blast. It's crazy, but it's, they're, they're so fun. So. Oh yeah. I love, I love that, man. I love the, uh, the energy kid energy is awesome. What's the best investment that you've ever made of time? Man, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, I think I could probably say a lot of things. One thing that kind of floats to the top of my mind is I used to be very anti-mastermind. You know, it's mm. kind of funny because you and I are both in a mastermind is how we right. ended up meeting. And I just like, this is such a crock. I mean, you're, you're paying to get access to, you know, these people that are in the mastermind. But since the one that we're in together, I joined my first one, I'm in like two or three others. <laughs> yeah. And it's just crazy to me like the, the ways that you can shortcut anything you're doing by the right connections and connections and partnerships network. It's so imperative to this kind of growth path and in every area of life, right? Health, faith, money, um, career path. I mean, just getting around with people. So spending time, um, I mean, most of the travel my wife and I do now, it's for masterminds, but it's wow. masterminds that we're, we're both excited about and, you know, have an overlap of values and excitement over. And, uh, you know, we're traveling more than we ever have. We're spending more time doing these things, but the return on it has just been exponential. If, if nothing else, just to see what's possible, right? Because uh, so much of our reality is created by what's our perception of reality and what do we think is actually possible to achieve? And so that, that's been to me surprising because I was so against it a couple of years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a big, it's a big shift and it, it's true what they say. Your network is your net worth, right? And yeah. making investments to systematically grow your network. I mean, it does have compounding returns. It's, it's amazing. And so this one, save the best for last. What's the worst money or investing advice you've ever received? I don't know if I received this, but I did it. I tried to buy a drop shipping business uh, mm. on the side, knowing nothing about e-commerce or uh, <laughs> online retail or drop shipping, and uh, ended up losing money. And um, <laughs> my wife was pretty pissed. So yeah, don't, don't buy online drop shipping businesses. Apparently, that's a, an old business model that doesn't work anymore. Uh, maybe maybe someone's making it work right now, but um, yeah, I, I, I think yeah, that kind of plays into the the Warren Buffett theme of investing what you know. I mean, That's it's right. investing really is so simple, but because we're humans and you know we're so complex, we make it very complicated. But there's really just a few simple rules that if you just do and you don't veer from all that much, you're going to be fine, right? And I think one of those right. is just investing what you know. And if you don't understand it, if it doesn't make sense to you. Don't invest in it, no matter how mm. good the returns look, right? It's it's just something that's so important because you're gonna miss things if you don't if you don't know. So true. Well, Ben, I know your time is precious. Appreciate you. Thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks, Christopher. It was really really fun. All right, man. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. It's so important that as technology employees, we understand the world of private equity, whether you're going to invest in it or not. It's a big world. And today we learned about debt funds. We learned about oil and gas investments, energy investments. Expand your horizons. Understand this world because it's through private equity that we can really start accelerating our exit and add big value cash flow into our evergreen portfolio. 
If you have any questions or suggestions for us, my ask today is please send us anything that you want to ask at ask at techcareersinmoneytalk.com. We answer all emails. Thanks so much. See you on the next one.